This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network's East Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Hong Dian Wang. Hello and welcome to our channel, Dr. Wang. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, uh, Decadence in Modern Chinese Literature and Culture, a Comparative and Literary Historical Reevaluation, published by Cambria Press in 2020. Um, let's start by by getting to know you and your work better. And, you know, as usual, I was I was thinking to ask you about how you came to this project. What got you interested in decadence and its influence over Chinese literature? I will be happy to talk about this story uh, after I worked on it for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I got interested in decadent literature when I was taking a class on Victorian literature in grad school at University of California, Riverside. The professor, whose name is uh, Dr. Susan Zieger, she's an expert on decadent literature in Britain, France, and the U.S. So in addition to reading Arthur Simmons, Oscar Wilde, Walter Pater, and Algernon Swinburne, we were also introduced to the works by Charles Baudelaire and Edgar Allan Poe. I was just utterly intrigued, not only because of their interest in exquisite imagery and sophisticated language, their fascination with perversity and morbidity, and their obsession with extreme sensations, but also because they appear profoundly contradictory to me. On the one hand, the poets and fictional characters in decadent literature pursue excitement in sexual aberrations and eccentric indulgences, while on the other, they also suffer from endless apathy and boredom. At the core of their central pursuits seems to lie a thirst for intellectual pleasure. Despite their seemingly irredeemable apathy and boredom, they appear to maintain a proud sense of triumph. More importantly, the sense of decadence I got from this class significantly differed from my impression of Tui Fei, which is the Chinese translation of the term since the early 1920s. In Chinese, Tui Fei has a strong connotation of pessimism and hedonism, which, though overlapping with its European counterpart, lacks the important contradictions that I noticed in British and French decadence. I decided to dig into it and find out how and why Chinese Tuifei diverged from European decadence, which led to my re-evaluation of four Chinese writers in the 20s and 30s, 80s and 90s, all of whom have been labeled as decadent. I also wanted to find out uh, if there are Chinese writers who do share the temperament and contradictions of their European decadent writers, which 
led to my study of three contemporary Chinese writers outside the socialist system since the mid-1980s. So it started off just as a simple curiosity, but later it became part of my dissertation project, and later it, turn, it was turned into a book. When I started this um, scholarly journey, I did not realize that the simple curiosity would later change my understanding of decadence or my understanding of seven important modern Chinese writers, or the status of China's modern cultural elite, or the role uh, played by the socialist system in China in all this um, transformation. I also did not realize that um, as I started off as a literary comparatist who was uh, more interested in textual analysis, I ended up uh, at the end of this journey an enthusiast of cultural history uh, I became fascinated with the sociocultural conditions that gave rise to the intriguing literary phenomena like decadence. So that's just a brief summary of my love story with this topic. Oh, it's amazing. And I really like it when, you know, there are stories like this that show the life of a project and, you know, your 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 development with it, right? As you know, exactly. Yeah, like it starts very little and then, you know, in a class, uh, not mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, disregard the importance of such classes, but, you know, a, a seminar paper is is different than, you know, a book, right? And mm-hmm. then you, you kind of spend so many years on developing this interest and it takes a life on it, of its own. And I find it fascinating. So it's... it's I very- totally agree that uh, description. It's like growing <laughs> together with a friend. Um, whose face starts blurry and became clearer and becomes prettier or uglier uh, as as I myself is growing and my observation and understanding of life and society and Chinese uh, culture changes as well. So it, it's really a fun process. I agree. I, I totally agree. And I also would add that sometimes can be frustrating as, you know, you feel growing maybe faster yes. or the project is growing faster or I don't know. But uh, I think it's part of the, the growth, right? Um, I agree as well. <laughs> I totally remember the frustrations. Oh, I'm happy that I grew out of it by now. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, um, the the book uh, is divided into three parts and each contains two or three chapters um, alongside the introduction and the conclusions. And here I'll I'll quote that the book uh, concentrates on writers from the 1920s and the early 1930s and uh, writers from the post-Mao era, as, as you mentioned as well. And it offers a close analysis of three groups of writers from different historical periods and evaluates the cultural context in modern China that made decadent rebellion either largely uh, unnecessary or particularly appealing at different uh, historical times. Um, And the introduction, uh, entitled Decadence versus Tuifei, grounds us by contextualizing the definition of of decadence as a movement in Europe and by positioning it in relation to Tuifei in China. And here I was really curious about the ways in which the book talks about these two phenomena together and connects them very, very convincingly, I have to say, specifically since the book stands at the intersection of comparative literature and cultural history and then follows the logic of decadent works. Um, Thanks very much for this question. It is an important one for me personally. Uh, However, it's interesting that to me, the difficulty is not how to connect Tuifei with decadence, but how to disentangle them from each other. 
The difficulty has two aspects to it. First, uh, my reading of European decadence was constantly interfered by the understanding of decadence among ordinary people. As we all know, when people hear the word decadence, they tend to immediately associate it with uh, sometimes kinky sex, sometimes luxurious diet. We actually often read the word on the labels of silky chocolate and fancy wine. So probably because of this common understanding of decadence, it's quite a challenge to argue that Tui Fei, which combines a pessimistic worldview and an indulgence in physical pleasures, is not the same as decadence. However, while acknowledging the common understanding of decadence and Tui Fei as valid and important, I feel I need to do justice to the texts in European decadence by explaining the significant contradictions that got me intrigued in the first place. I came to realize that uh, while European decadence embraced the cult of artificiality that led to all kinds of excesses, they were actually rebelling against the norms in which they believed. This is the primary paradox of decadence. They uh, may appear outrageously perverse, but it was all for show. As I dug deeper into it, I realized that uh, European decadents indulged in themselves in this performance of perversion because they were anxious members of the elite in their respective societies who felt that their cultural and moral authority was being challenged by the rising middle class, whom they despised. In order to reclaim and brandish their spiritual superiority, they decided to rebel against the norms they believed in uh, this pursuit of uh, fundamentally intellectual pleasure is different from both the common understanding of decadence and of Tui Fei. Because of this performance of perversion, European decadence is doomed to be short-lived uh, as soon as the decadence started to repeat themselves and as soon as the public started to imitate them. Their rebellion would lose its uniqueness and their claim for spiritual superiority would evaporate. European decadents started off bored um, because of their contempt for the bourgeois taste and pragmatism. Nothing can make their boredom more irredeemable than the bourgeois co-option of their rebellion. To me, this is the logic of decadent rebellion. It explains why decadence happened, how it worked, and what caused its hasty demise. It helps to look beyond the particular themes and styles of European decadence, and makes it possible to do a literary historical comparison among different national literatures. The reason I consider my book as standing at the intersection of comparative literature and cultural history is because I see the literary phenomenon of decadence as at once a product and an indicator of certain socio-cultural conditions. Therefore, if we find a similar phenomenon of decadent literature in China, it should also illuminate a similar sociocultural condition. So this is the, the theoretical or logical structure I'm following in this book. Right, and it's it's really um, it really grounds us, and it, it shows right the the a different right type of understanding other than the one that is you know as as you said at the beginning um understanding of decadence and you know shows how intricate it was and you know how it engaged with society and how there was this back and forth between um you know the the, the evolving you know industrial type of, of of 
uh, environments and writers, artists, and and the the cultural life that was happening at that time in Europe, and also write how that translates into the Chinese environment and why and how and you know what what effect it had. So it's um, it's really a, a very important. Uh, chapter, if I may say so, in the book, but also I think in the larger conversation that we're having about Chinese literature and its, you know, influences and connections received from from abroad. Um, And of course, we see this, you know, uh, happening in the chapters as well, but I just wanted to mention the importance of the the introduction. Oh, thank you. Actually, I struggled with it quite a bit um, because, uh, as I just said, that I had to fight my own impression of Tui Fei and fight uh, people's common understanding of um, a decadence at the same time when I'm trying to tease out what I see as the, um, the essence of uh, European decadence. Um, so I think, uh, I sometimes I think, um, wh- why don't I just uh, go along with the flow? Uh, it's easier. But at the same time, I feel there is, um, at the core of European decadence, there is that energetic um because of its paradox, uh, it's, there is an energetic will that's driving their rebellion. And then also because of the close connection between their contradictory rebellion and their sociocultural environment. I feel there is a gold mine of explanatory power if we can use this model and to evaluate or to look through other uh, cultures and uh, literatures, we might be able to shed light on uh, other uh, cultures, uh, I want to say, uh, their sociocultural uh, intricate uh, transformation. So I think uh, the reason I'm passionate about uh, trying to argue uh, why this decadence is different from what we are commonly uh, understanding uh, about it is that I want to show that this particular phenomenon is really unique. And then its uniqueness can help us to understand the larger picture of uh, culture and society. I absolutely agree. Yeah, (laughs) I absolutely uh, am on the same page. And, um, you know, I I was very, very happy to see names like uh, Yutafu or Yuhua or, you know, others as well um, uh, present in the book and discussed in this context uh, that, that you laid out in the introduction. So um, absolutely, yeah, I agree. And you know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll move on to part one, uh, not to take too much of your time, right? So part one is uh, entitled "Seeing Romanticism Through Decadence: uh, Twifei Writers in the 1920s and 19 and the 1930s," and it contains uh, chapter one on Yutafu, entitled "Yutafu: A Hesitant Pioneer of Body Writing," uh, and chapter two um, entitled "Shao uh, Xunmei: An Ardent Advocate for Earthly Pleasures." And here, uh, this part, uh, and of course the chapters, analyze how these two writers have adopted romanticism through decadence as their internal contradictions prompted them to experience sexual repression, pessimism, and of course if we think of Yutafu, that's that's definitely there, um, and to question the conventional mortality of their times uh, and morality as well. now, chapter one that uh, takes takes a closer look at Yutafu analyzes his profound dilemmas and his deliberate use of European decadence as a way to navigate through through his times and through his dilemmas. And I was wondering, uh, what were these uh, these phenomena? And how were they shaping Chinese literary field in the twentieth century um, in terms of paradoxes, dilemmas, uh, 
you know, worldview uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. So Yudafu is a really interesting figure. He was one of the iconic writers of the May 4th movement in the early 20th century that focused on iconoclasm and enlightenment. Or in other words, the May 4th intellectuals, including Yu Dafu, they were eager to enlighten the masses in China by overthrowing Confucianism's absolute spiritual control. Yu's short stories have often been considered classics in this anti-Confucianism literary campaign because of their explicit depiction of sex and sexual anxieties. However, my reading of Yu Dafu's fiction, diaries, and memoir shows that the writer and his semi-autobiographical protagonists were trapped in a moral dilemma. While they were eager to break away from the grip of Confucianism, their moral beliefs were deeply rooted in it. Most of his agony stemmed from this dilemma. He considered himself a fellow victim of the European decadence because he believed that his European counterparts also suffered from the unrelenting control of their tradition. I did not specifically discuss the Chinese cultural, no, Chinese literary field in the early 20th century in my book, but this was an important issue at the back of my mind. The early 20th century in China witnessed not only exciting changes, but also excruciating confusions and chaos. Different groups and individuals, including writers, critics, and readers, all lived through this thrilling and scary era and all tried to make sense of it and come to terms with it. According to Professor Perlink, an important reason for the popularity of the Mandarin duck and butterfly literature at the time is that the writers offered the readers vicarious experiences of overcoming the temptations and anxieties of living in this modern time. While the butterfly writers tended to provide relatively harmonious solutions with conservative leanings, the main fourth writers like Yu Dafu tended to foreground the clash between the old and the new. However, as my reading of Yu Dafu also showed that uh, Yu Dafu himself uh, transformed over time. He started off as this uh, tortured, uh, pessimistic uh, writer who's struggling with uh, his obsession with the Confucian moral code and his uh, belief in the new moral cult. Uh, he later on was able to um, change himself and he was able to uh, talk about uh, sexual liberty uh, with, not, with not much um, moral burden. So as the transformation of Yu Dafu's writing shows that the writer gradually grew out of his own dilemma, which also reflected the changes in society as a whole. So I absolutely agree with you that um, this moral dilemma uh, was quite uh, at the center of Chinese society, not only among the intellectuals, uh, writers, but also uh, among the ordinary people who were uh, grappling um, desperately with the new changes happening every day in their life. And I think literature is um, definitely an important way for these people to express, to imagine, um, or also to um, come to terms with all these dilemmas. Yeah, and we, we, we see it right with the other writers as well, um, even though uh, historical conditions have changed a little bit, but, you know, we, we, we follow this. It's kind of like the, the background sound, right, that we, we have um, 
when we look at all the, the, the other authors. And I think speaking of, of moral dilemmas and also the engagement with, uh, with sensuality and, you know, body writing, uh, I think chapter two, right, following Shao uh, Xunmei's work as a sensual poet, prolific essays, literary critic, translator, editor, and publisher, he was, he was wearing, uh, I mean, you know, wearing a lot of hats here. Um, you know, the, the chapter closely follows the influences in, in, in his works. And I was wondering how this, how did romanticism and decadence play out in, in his writing? And how did he contribute to the flourishing of the Chinese literary world in the 20s and 30s? Um, specifically, because despite all the, you know, the, the internal struggle and the, that, that the writers had, um, we do see a flourishing of literary studies and writings. Yes. Uh, so Shao Xunmei uh, is worth mentioning because he was a visionary cultural entrepreneur and an important contributor to uh, the Chinese literary world in the 1920s and 1930s. In the West, he was better known for being the lover of the American journalist Emily Han. In China, he was known for his writing of Tuifei poetry and literary criticism, translating and introducing European decadent works, and more importantly, for publishing a series of popular and influential magazines and pictorials that not only enabled many Chinese writers to pursue new styles and themes, but also fostered a new generation of modern Chinese readers. So for anyone who is interested in the development of print media in modern Shanghai, Shao Xunmei is indispensable. Unfortunately, Xiao's name was condemned to oblivion for many decades after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, or PRC, because he came from an especially affluent family and because he was once mocked by the herald literary master Lu Xun. Xiao's contribution to the Chinese literary world was not mentioned again until after the Cultural Revolution, long after his untimely death in 1968. As his family and friends endeavored to revive his fame and legacy, at a time the notion of decadence shrugged off the moral and political stigma in China. Xiao has been seen as a decadent poet because of his admiration of Sappho and several European decadent poets, and also because of the erotic imagery in his poetry. However, if we read Xiao's poems, essays, and biographies, uh, carefully and holistically, we may find that he was a romantic at heart. Indeed, Shaw was an ardent admirer of Sappho, Algernon Swinburne, Paul Verlaine, and Charles Baudelaire. But a close reading of Shaw's poems shows that he was attracted to their refined poetic techniques, intense emotions, and rebellious spirit. He saw the pursuit of sexual love as a daring revolt against moral authority. In this, he was actually well in line with the May 4th writers like Yu Dafu, uh, even though he was less beholden to the moral constraints that plagued other writers at the time. He was a rebel for, for the norms in which he believed in, which made him a romantic, uh, not against the norms he believed in, which would have made him a decadent. Anyway, he never concerned himself with brandishing his spiritual superiority. In other words, uh, even though Shao has a, uh, was a big fan of several European decadent poets, he actually admired their, or what he perceived as their, romantic spirit. 
because he was so eager to break away with the conventional moral code in China. He was consciously or unconsciously coloring his view, seeing romanticism through decadence. I think this was uh, more uh, obvious if we compare his poems with um, poems by Butler. Uh, as my as I mentioned in my book, um, there are some imagery that we recall of Butler, but then Shaw's take or literary and moral take about those imagery are completely different from uh, Shaw, uh, from Butler. Uh, rather than in embracing ugliness and death uh, as a way to show off their um, free will, Shaw was literally embracing uh, the earthly, uh, raw, sometimes uh, dirty pleasures uh, of being alive, of being uh, or embracing one's passion and desire. And Shaw was using this uh, kind of uh, sensual poem as a way to um, rebel against uh, the Confucian moral constraints. So uh, I, I find it interesting because uh, if we just follow the words, uh, we see that he, he pays homage to all these decadent masters. But then if we look into his reasoning, uh, if we can call reasoning uh, something reasoning <laughs> in poetry, uh, we, we can find that um, he, he was in love, uh, not with um, intellectual pleasure that we see in uh, European decadence, but solely for uh, the love he had for the, uh, the romantic passion that he um, cannot let go. So in a sense, um, even though uh, after the Cultural Revolution, um, the notion of decadence is no longer a moral stigma in Chinese culture, and then by associating Shao Xunmei with European decadence is uh, a way to raise his status, at least out of his oblivion. However, uh, if we remember that uh, because of his uh, Tui Fei style, he was condemned politically during the Cultural Revolution. So uh, we actually should do him more justice by uh, revealing his true romantic nature as opposed to um, the apparent similarity between him and the uh, decadent literature in the West. I absolutely agree. And I, I found it very, very interesting. And uh, I was actually, I, I did, you know, a bit of a search at the library and everything um, about his works uh, after reading your book. And I thought that's it's a very good opportunity to, to think about him and also other figures, right, that have somehow fell to the side um, of, of, you know, studying or kind of thinking about in terms of the 1920s and 1930s uh, Chinese literature. Um, and, you know, I thought it's, it's, it's a shame and I'm, I'm very, you know, keen on learning more and actually uh, reading uh, some of some more actually of his work. So, yeah, I thought it's, it's um, the chapter actually does multiple types of work at the same time. Um, as we're moving to towards the the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, and of course engaging with the concept of of the revolution, um, so uh, yeah, I, that was just a comment to to say that uh, yeah, his figure is quite important. I'm happy to learn that I, I stimulated your interest in this figure, and I do uh, recommend him. He he is very interesting. Uh, maybe people have different taste about his uh, poetry. 
but I think um, I think after reading a little bit more of him, uh, you you can get uh, very um, involved in his thinking. That uh, for maybe for any young people who are trying to become an adult who to become themselves uh, to grow a sense of uh, identity, um, maybe anyone can feel his passion and his struggle and also his um his sense of triumph that he's able to um deal the authority uh, a big blow so i i really uh recommend him uh, to everyone i am happy to and um you know i it's it's on my list so <laughs> you know um but you know speaking uh, speaking of of uh, of lists and things i i want to um talk about um i think in in part two uh farewell to revolution uh critical uh fund secularization in the late 1980s and early uh 1990s comprises of a chapter dedicated to yuhua and a second uh focused on sutong and uh seen as decadence they both decadent uh authors, uh, they both engage to a certain extent with pessimism and apathy, as well as with a desire to distance themselves from the rhetoric and mindset of the revolution. And um, here I wanted to ask you about the meaning of the concept of uh, uh, fin du siècle awareness and its influence on Yuhua's work and its portrayal uh, in the 1980s and 90s China. And, um, you know, more specifically, how is Yuhua's literary stance in relation to violence and cruelty related uh, or not to, to decadence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So the concept of uh, fin de siècle awareness was actually coined by Chinese scholar Chen Sihe in the early 1990s and shared by quite a few of his fellow critics. So it, it may be worth mentioning that here, uh, the reason I skipped the years between 1930s and 1980s is because a decadence became uh, extremely politically incorrect uh, under Chinese communist rule. Uh, actually, before uh, PRC was established, uh, as China was experiencing more national crisis under uh, the Japanese invasion and later the civil war, um, people, including ordinary people and intellectuals, uh, feel that uh, we should no longer um, indulge ourselves in decadent obsessions. We should uh, concern ourselves with the the fate of the country. So uh, it was no longer appropriate for people to continue to talk about decadence. And then later on, it became so bad that uh, it was only uh, discussed in the context of um, political condemnation. So that's why you no Shao Xunmei. Uh, was one of the victims because of his connection with Tui uh, Fei. Anyway, uh, after the Cultural Revolution, the culture changed in China. It was not only okay to talk about decadence again, but it was actually uh, preferable uh, to talk about it because so many people are eager to um, get away from what they see as uh, political repression in the uh, Cultural Revolution. And then by embracing the idea of or decadence is a way to um, mark their uh, resistance. So uh, Chen Sihe and his fellow critics um, raised this idea of fin de siècle awareness in this uh, cultural context. According to Chen, the term refers to the belief in the imminent end of the human world 
and an indifferent attitude to that end. This term bears obvious influence of postmodernism, which became extremely popular among many Chinese young scholars after Frederick Jameson's 1985 visit in China. To Chen, the signature coldness in Yu Hua's fiction, especially his character's complete apathy towards violence and death, represents the essence of that awareness. Uh, Chen and his fellow critics enthusiastically celebrated Yu's writing because they believe it suspends moral judgment, dissolves rationality, uh, deconstructs enlightenment ideals, and exalts nihilism which fundamentally undermines the revolutionary fervor that turned Chinese upside down in the Maoist years. Um, that said, I have to say that I disagree with Chen's assessment. Mm-hmm. In my reading, humanism has been the central concern in Yu's writing. His fiction reads especially cold-blooded because he adopts two layers of detachment in his writing. One between the narrators and the violence they narrate, and the other between Yu Hua, the author, and his narrators, which is to say that when we read the cold narration in his stories that is chilling to our bones, um, we have to remember we have to remember that uh, this is this narrator is not Yu Hua or Yu Hua the writer is not endorsing this cold-blooded um, attitude. So Yu Hua does. Uh, he writes like this not to deconstruct morality, but to criticize both the narrated evil and the attitude of nonchalance towards it. Moreover, he attributes fatalism not to the mysterious destiny of human beings, but to the disasters caused by concrete historical events, the Cultural Revolution in particular. I still remember vividly uh, interviewing Yu Hua when he came to uh, Riverside to give a talk on his book, uh, China in Ten Words. And he told me that even though he was quite young when the Cultural Revolution uh, started, uh, it was uh, so shocking to him, even though he was a boy, that it became uh, at the, ce- the center of his writing thereafter. So uh, even though uh, scholars like Zhao Yihong uh, cannot believe that uh, a generation that's so young can be so obsessed with the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Yu Hua is a case in point that um, the human disaster uh, can seep into childhood, and which, why, which is why we see it everywhere in Yu Hua's writing. So Yu Hua's writing does have the, a morbid, morbid penchant that recalls European decadence but he exposes darkness in society, not to brandish his own free will, but to call for a restoration of humanism. The scholarly efforts by Chen and his fellow critics to fantasyacalize Yu's writing in the late 1980s and early 1990s has less to do with Yu's own writing, more to do with uh, these scholars' desire or eagerness to bid farewell to the revolutionary rhetoric and mindset that they consider to be initiated in the May 4th movement and responsible for the political catastrophes in the past decades. So um, here, I think I'm trying to say that um, 
Even though I disagree with uh, Chen Suhe's assessment with Yuhua, I understand uh, why they were uh, reviving this idea at this particular time. And then as we can see uh, that later, as you continue to write, um, his writing warmed up. It, it became less and less cold-blooded, less and less cruel. Uh, instead, in, he showed uh, the other side of his humanism, that is the um, conviction in the goodness of human nature. So uh, through this r- chapter, I, I was happy to uh, explain my not only my understanding, but also my love of Yuhua's work, because uh, Yuhua is one of my favorite writers. Um, I wanted to say that um, his cold writing actually is a disguise of his warm heart. And then we should interpret his coldness as his way of condemnation of the evil he sees. But it doesn't um, change the fact that he still believes that human being can be and should be better, uh, should be nicer, kinder, and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I also wanted to say that, yeah, I, I, I love Yuho's work as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to talk about it every time. Uh, uh-huh. So, um, yeah, it's and I totally agree that, um, you know, his uh, his earlier works where, you know, the it's, it's actually quite quite visceral. Right. And we get these uh, these descriptions. Right. Quite. Um, yeah, quite quite striking. Um, it is right a, a way of 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 exploring um, you know humanism or exploring the, the side of of the human nature that you know it, it's 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 part of a larger picture and it doesn't mean that he necessarily endorses it but you know it just it's it's a critique of of mm-hmm. uh, facts and um, yeah so I totally uh, agreed with uh, with with what you're saying and I just wanted to to pitch in with yes I like him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's uh, if you think about it, for someone who loves human beings so much, yeah. uh, he has to go through a lot of mental effort to restrain his love and to show the bloodiness, the coldness, and cruelty uh, among human beings. So yeah. I think that's fascinating to me. I don't think I can manage, but Yuhua did it, and that's why I love him. <laughs> Right, right, right. I, I totally think there was a lot of uh, of emotional and mental gymnastics that he he had. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I think this goes for for Su Tong as well to a certain extent, and uh, we we definitely see this in in chapter four, um, entitled Su Tong: A Chinese Echo of Nietzsche, uh, and the chapter explores how and why Su Tong echoes Nietzsche, but not European decadent writers, uh, as you mentioned on page one oh one twelve. And I wanted to turn the statement into a question about Su Tong's writing and position vis-a-vis a clear distancing from the rhetoric of revolution, right, regarding uh, his uh, his echoing of Nietzsche, an interpretation of decadence uh, uh, from Nietzsche's perspective, and then how Su Tong takes that and, you know, um, kind of portrays it in, in his writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think scholars um, probably all agree that Su Tong's writing uh, is uh, criticism of revolution. I think my intervention here or my uh, contribution here is to say that um, the, the reason Su Tong uh, is writing um, to criticize the revolutionary legacy uh, is because of his um, agreement 
uh, not necessarily conscious agreement, but uh, his agreement uh, with Nietzsche's uh, judgment of revolution as well. So like Yu Hua, Su Tong is also a famous avant-garde writer uh, whose fiction has been considered decadent for expressing a strong sense of fatalism and exploring the depths of human depravity. He tends to depict revolution in a negative light, which resonates with Nietzsche, who considers revolution itself as decadent. So to Nietzsche, decadence is a philosophical concept, which differs from the artistic notion of decadence in the British and French decadence movement. It means for Nietzsche, the weakening of the will to life, the submission to reason, morality, and Christianity, uh, the susceptibility to stimuli, and the failure to coordinate one's multiple impulses in a systematic order. So Nietzsche's writing style is very interesting. He he doesn't have a um, coherent um, a systematic writing style. He His writing is more sporadic, almost like... Um, anecdotes. But then if you uh, pull his discussions on decadence together, you can see these um, four themes uh, appearing constantly. And I think these four um, dimensions of decadence in Nietzsche's philosophical understanding of the term uh, decadence is very important for us to understand Su Tong because um, we can see a very um, clear, at least to me, a clear a parallel between the two. So to Nietzsche, the prevalence of decadence was the result of the rising of the middle class and lower class in the late 19th century. Uh, at the same time, in Su Tong's fiction, there are three major types of characters. First, the wealthy and the powerful who have lost their will to life. Uh, second, the underdogs who lose themselves in their struggles to fend off humiliations and aggressions. And third, those who destroy themselves due to a failure to manage their selfish and primitive instincts. All of them fit Nietzsche's notion of decadence. Like Nietzsche, uh, Su Tong sees human beings as a weak, uh, as weak and um, unsure, sickly, uh, only uh, capable of um, maintaining the status quo, unimaginative, all those negative terms. Uh, and revolution, which is launched in the name of the weak-minded masses, is decadent. So you can see, or you can call Nietzsche a, a defender of the elite uh, who was unhappy with the rising middle class and the lower class. And then the reason um, Nietzsche and people like him were unhappy is because uh, they feel the world is being taken over by these uh, weak-minded mob or masses. Uh, so when we see the parallel between Nietzsche's uh, understanding of decadence and the characters in Su Tong's fiction, uh, we can see that uh, Su Tong's fiction demonstrates, though indirectly, that the mobilization of the unsure, the weak, the sickly, and the me mediocre, the mob, was the real cause of the political catastrophe in the communist campaign. In this, he also contributed to the repudiation of China's revolutionary legacy. So I, I want to say that uh, Su Tong indeed, he criticized uh, the cr revolution, but then uh, he doesn't criticize revolution as if uh, revolution by 
by nature is evil. He's trying to say that the participants of the revolution, the masses who have been mobilized by revolution, those people are the real cause of the disaster we have been through. Um, it's the it's the masses who are weak, unsure. Uh, they're unimaginative. Uh, they are um, creating all these troubles uh, we had to endure. So uh, I think my my intervention or contribution is to add another another layer or depth uh, to this discussion of Su Tong's criticism of revolution. And I did it by citing Nietzsche. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, I think it's an important conversation to 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 have and specific. Well, it, it definitely right uh, fits in, into the to the, the you know, frame of the book. But um, as the other chapters uh, show, you know, it is a, an, a, a topic or a layer, right, as you, you mentioned, um, to a conversation that is, is quite important in Chinese literary and uh, cultural history. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's important to, to be had. Uh, and the same, you know, goes with for the other writers. Um, and uh, we get to, to write now since we're in the 1980s and 1990s, um, you know, part three, performing perversion, decadence with Chinese characteristics from mid uh, 1980s to the turn of the century, um, devotes its energies to authors who are not directly influenced by European decadence, but whose work uh, show a similar logic, and here we, we stay with the this idea of the similar logic and the, the cultural conditions, right? Where we can we can sense this, um, uh, you know, the influence of, of decadence. And uh, chapter five, Wang Shuo, the elite in hooligan disguise, uh, shows that Wang and his characters are indeed decadent in the European sense, but not because of their uh, degeneracy or nihilism, but because their hooliganism is uh, posed. And uh, I quoted that from page 134. Um, and, you know, I, I was really fascinated by this idea of posing as, as a hooligan. And I wanted to, to ask about it and about the cultural dynamics engendering such a sustained act, uh, because it's not just one and done. The, the characters and he himself, um, you know, have a, a sustained performance of, of hooliganism. Yes, yes. Um, so... So the previous two parts in the book are dealing with uh, writers who have been called or by by critics or themselves um, decadent, and but the the writers in part three um, have never been, or may, maybe except the case of Wang Shuo, they are usually not um, associated with decadence. So uh, I got interested in Wang Shuo because. Um, Part of it, is, uh, he's fun to read. Uh, he he made me laugh. So, and in the gloomy days, uh, Wang Shuo is uh, is the golden choice to to spend a day. Uh, so he was known as a hooligan writer or pizzuojia. I know Victoria, you also study hooliganism. Uh, so maybe Wang Shuo is you, your uh, cup of cake as a uh, cup of tea too. So, <laughs> so um, 
I also like like him very much. Uh, his fiction in the late 1980s and early 1990s were mostly modeled on his own and his childhood friends' real experience. Uh, so scholars, including supporters and distractors, have called him Tui Fei because they note in his fiction a spiritual nihilism and moral degeneracy. Uh, my re- reading of Wang Shuo, however, uh, demonstrates that um, his notorious master of mischief characters, in spite of their irreverent appearance and criminal activities, they actually identify with mainstream values wholeheartedly. Also, they're not desperate commoners uh, marginalized in society in the reform era, but members of a military elite who grew up in a privileged military compound in Beijing and maintained close connections with the authorities. Uh, They flaunt their freedom to transgress mainstream values that at a deeper level they believe in, and in so doing experience a strong sense of superiority over ordinary people. Uh, You you talked about posing uh, being important here, and I totally agree, because um, uh, they are not commoners, uh, they are not marginalized, uh, they are actually elite, and they actually believe in the social norms, but they still decided to um, pretend that they are hooligans, uh, they're good-for-nothings, and then they also pretend that they don't care about the mainstream, and they actually mock the mainstream and ridicule them uh, ruthlessly. So uh, in my reading, th- this posing resonates strongly with European decadence. Uh, once hooliganism uh, has its roots in communist propaganda on revolutionary heroism, which despite its call for humble service of the masses, inculcate in Wang and his childhood friends a strong sense of elitism. So this may be a little um, twisted. I'm trying to say that um, uh, Wang Shuo and his friends came from a unique class in um, contemporary Chinese society. Uh, Ever since uh, PRC was established, uh, there was this socialist trinity that composes uh, peasants, workers, and uh, soldiers. So among the three, um, actually, the the military has been enjoying um, high high status in both um, social and political uh, arena. Mm -hmm. So being born in the new China and being indoctrinated uh, by the government that they belong to this uh, enlightened and important class um, Wang Shu and his friends actually believed that they they were the leaders of society. They they're supposed to be uh, worshipped uh, as hero, as we have seen so many times in political propaganda. But this all this changed suddenly uh, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, as the country started to embrace reform and opening up. They uh, abandoned their previous uh, socialist trinity. The former heroes, revolutionary heroes, uh, embodied in these uh, army soldiers, uh, this entire image with aura suddenly collapsed. So for a generation who were brought up to believe that they are the future savior of China and the world, uh, they suddenly basically lost their hope. And then uh, also the society switched their attention and adoration away from uh, the military elites. So they no longer enjoy that worship 
that they have been expecting uh, ever since they were young. So it's, it is this sudden decline of their cultural and moral authority that triggered this um, posing, this decadent performance, that by uh, rebelling against the norms they believe in, um, they're able to show the ordinary people who they have been thinking are inferior to themselves. Uh, they were able to show that they are still uh, superior. Um, at least they can indulge themselves in these kind of perverse pleasures. So that's why I'm uh, arguing that uh, Wang Shuo's uh, decadent rebellion was rooted in the socialist system. It is the socialist education of the revolutionary heroism that made him uh, such a um, perverse hooligan writer. Uh, they resort to decadent rebellion as a way to reclaim their superiority. However, because of the paradoxes in this rebellion, they have to give it up um, shortly. Right, 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 right. And, um, you know, also, it's it's very interesting, right? And as you say, twisted in a way that we had the, you know, Wang Shuo year, and we had, you know, this, uh, this fever, as we translated for for his, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for his for his works, and then it, it got it, some of them got uh, even, you know, televised, like there was a TV show and everything. And, uh, you know, if you think about the ways of in which he would pose as a hooligan to reclaim right a certain position it, it's it becomes very very interesting to to study the twists of, of all <laughs> i think another twist to the story is that um wang Chuo, his t- main target uh, of his mockery was the intellectuals yeah. uh, because uh, as a former military elite uh, during the re- reform era it is the intellectuals who are stealing their thunder so uh, he mocked the intellectuals um, ruthlessly. However, uh, he was uh, also inspiring a lot of uh, admiration from the intellectuals. His um, biggest fans tend to be intellectuals uh, who, as I uh, argue later in the book, um, also as they themselves started to feel the decline of their own uh, status, they realized that Wang Shuo's way of um, posing uh, gave them a way to assert their own um, superiority. But this is a later story. Right. Yeah. Everything is fascinating. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's worth uh, putting out there. Um, and I think we, we can follow the same line in, in large, uh, you know, kind of in, in larger strokes uh, when we're talking about Wang Xiaobo in chapter six, um, entitled Wang Xiaobo, Contrarian Hero, where we learn about his uh, close engagement with and writings on irrationality. And um, how is this emblematic uh, of the cultural and social anxiety in 1990s China? And, uh, you know, I, I was wondering how does it speak or not to what Wang Shuo was, was proposing in a way? Mm-hmm. Um, so Wang Xiaobo is one of uh, my favorite authors as well. Uh, he- he, he was a legend on China's uh, contemporary cultural scene. Uh, he, he has been uh, a standard bearer for Chinese liberalism despite his untimely death uh, in his early 40s. Uh, what is interesting uh, is that while Wang Xiaobo uh, relentlessly deplores the intellectual destruction during the Cultural Revolution, 
in his essays and dystopian fiction, he portrays deliberately irrational protagonists in his most unforgettable novellas. Um, so scholars tend to focus on his uh, discussion of intellectual destruction uh, of the cultural revolution and his uh, proposal or embrace of reason and um, intellectual freedom. Uh, I agree. And it's actually everywhere if you read uh, Wang Xiaobo. He, t- he also tends to get repetitive from time to time about his um, obsession with uh, reason and liberty. However, because of this obsession that's everywhere in his writing, it's very surprising uh, when you read his most famous novellas uh, collected in his um, uh, volume called Wang Jin Shidai or The Age, The Golden Age. Uh, in these stories, uh, which are set during or after the Cultural Revolution, his characters, especially those female characters, are usually obsessed uh, with their in- unique individuality uh, by pursuing intellectual pleasure in ways that contradict their own beliefs and their best interests, just as it was for the European decadence. So I have to say that Wang Xiaobo never showed any knowledge or interest in European decadence, but I'm arguing that he's decadent in the European sense because of um, his portrayal of these um, contradictory characters, that they, um, they're they so obsessed with their uniqueness, with their free will, that they're willing and they're eager to uh, hurt their own um, body and their own um, interests, and they're willing to contradict themselves. So this is the, the logic I have been following. Uh, so Wang Xiaobo and Wang Shuo, in a sense, they are polar opposites. Uh, Wang Xiaobo is a former uh, military elite, and then he enjoys being called a hooligan writer. And his writing was extremely popular uh, since the mid-1980s. Wang Xiaobo, on the other hand, uh, came from the a background of intellectual elite. His parents uh, all became, uh, I mean, all belonged to the uh, higher ed in Beijing, uh, a special class uh, in China. This particular class uh, was condemned to the bottom of society during the Cultural Revolution, but then was able to rise after uh, reform and opening up started. So Wang Xiaobo's uh, background is interesting in comparison with Wang Shuo in that um, uh, his, his status has an almost opposite trajectory than Wang Shuo. Uh, but then, interestingly, both Wang Shuo and Wang Xiaobo uh, came from an elite class, even though different uh, class, uh, Wang Shuo being military and Wang Xiaobo being intellectual. Uh, and then both actually experienced a sudden decline of their um, high status. So as I said just now, um, the military elite, they they lost their privileges, they lost their aura as soon as the reform started. Uh, they were no longer the heroes of society. And then the intellectuals, uh, including Wang Xiaobo, since the early 1980s, uh, they rose to become cultural heroes of Chinese society as Chinese people were eager to um, reflect upon what they did wrong in the past and how they can improve their life, both spiritually and economically, in the future. Uh, Wang Xiaobo was one of those who were uh, part of the new uh, privileged uh, cultural heroes. 
However, Wang Xiaobo also experienced um, the decline of this new elite um, because uh, Chinese society became very quickly materialized or marketized. So these former cultural elite and cultural heroes, they had to compete with popular writers like Wang Shuo in the market. And many of them were not able to compete because um, the, the readers were eager to read something more fun, uh, less serious, uh, more entertaining, uh, less, uh, how would I say, less challenging. <laughs> so uh, Wang Xiaobo, he was part of this group of people. And then because of this sudden rise and fall of their status, uh, they also feel the similar, a similar kind of anxiety that was plaguing European decadence. That um, while believing that intellectuals should be the elite in thinking, they realize that the society no longer care about thinking, uh, no longer care about what they had to say. So he felt the sting and a severe sting of the decline uh, in the status of Chinese intellectuals uh, in this era of marketization. And so, uh, ironically, even though he disliked people like Wang Shuo, uh, he followed a, same, a similar trajectory. Uh, he also created decadent heroes in order to reclaim uh, spiritual superiority, although in vain. So I think it's, it's interesting to compare uh, Wang Shuo and Wang Xiaobo uh, in terms of their background, in terms of uh, their relationship with the social um, historical conditions, the uh, especially their rise and fall uh, in their status. For sure, for sure, and um, yeah, and I also like the the subtitles of the chapters, right? The the elite uh, uh, in hooligan disguise, and then the contrarian hero. Um, that you know, I thought that that actually you know, describes very well uh, their trajectories and how, you know, they interacted with each other, um, you know, sometimes not in a, you know, a very, uh, let's say, um, you know, as you said, they didn't like each other that much, or maybe just Wang Xiaobo didn't like Wang Shuo. So, um, yeah, anyway, I thought that was uh, interesting. And then, you know, it's kind of everything is tied up with the the third chapter in this part, uh, chapter seven, uh, with uh, In Li Chuan, a reflexive rebel, uh, right, where, um we see the deserved attention uh, being given to 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 this figure and uh, the literary works as they are categorized as uh, lower body writing uh, to show a radicalization of the subversion in body writing, specifically by eliminating the intellectualism in the latter. And um, we can speak of rebellion against norms here, but my question regards exactly this reflexive rebellion and Ian's stance in relation to the Tuifei phenomenon. Um, and then, of course, you know, I wanted to to kind of tie them all three together and and see how they stand in relation to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, in Li Chuan uh, was a surprise a discovery for myself when I was reading um, about contemporary avant-garde poetry in China, and then she is a, a very versatile person. Uh, she's a talented poet. Uh, she writes fiction. She writes. Um, critical essays uh, commenting on all sorts of issues uh, in Chinese culture and society. She's also a filmmaker. Um, So she was quite active uh, and also productive uh, in the early 2000s. And then she became famous at the turn of the 21st century because of her leadership role in uh, controversial 
poetry school called the lower body or xia ban shen. Um, so the the whole school is supposed to embrace the idea that um, uh, the the upper body or the the spirit spiritual and intellectual part uh, of the body, referring to uh, the previous generations of poets who tends to focus on the ideals, um, the the lofty um, goals, uh, literature and uh, human beings. Uh, they actually oppose those um, ideals. Uh, they believe that uh, those ideals and lofty goals are actually poisonous uh, for Chinese people. It is actually the lower body that are more real, uh, the more sensual, the more bodily, um, the more uh, earthy pleasures that are more sensual and more um, more to the point uh, for both literary writing and, and life. So uh, it was a quite um, controversial school of poetry. And it was also quite popular online because this concurred with the rise of Chinese internet at the time. Uh, so they were very active being uh, online. Uh, they were uh, commanding a huge following as well. Yin Li Chuan uh, was actually quite unique uh, because when I was reading her poetry in comparison with um, her fellow lower body poets, that uh, she was actually very critical of their own uh, writing. So on the one hand, uh, she's um, she's uh, emphasizing all these lower body functions and activities. On the other hand, she cannot uh, stop reflecting upon them. So she actually brought in a huge amount of intellectualism to this anti-intellectual uh, school of poetry. So she is a rebel herself, um, but then she's also astutely sensitive to and perceptive about rebellion itself. Uh, she is deeply concerned with individuality and originality in her life and work. Uh, if you read her poetry, you constantly feel um, a, a painful dilemma uh, that she she's trying um, painstakingly to um, describe because her poetry highlights an almost impossible um, conflict between her deep attachment to and profound resentment of daily life. So I will add that um, this lower body poetry um, also concurs with uh, another uh, school of poetry, Xin um, Dai or New Generation of Poets. They tend to use um, daily life language and daily life imagery to talk about uh, very plain uh, um, I principles or uh, feelings and ideals in daily life. So uh, in, in Li Chuan's poetry, you can feel her uh, sincere love of this daily life. Um, she can talk about um, insignificant objects in her life with a lot of uh, loving attention. Um, it's almost like uh, watching or looking at a painting by Van Gogh that uh, everything, it looks so simple, but the way she puts them together makes them glowing with a, a warmth um, or glowing with some um, deep meaning that's hidden in the simplicity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, we also read uh, repeatedly how she hates her own love for these daily life uh, objects and the way of life. So um, there is a, a tension, a constant tension uh, that's 
going throughout her um, writing that um, we can feel that she is trying very hard to distance herself from her daily life desires. Um, then because of this purposeful distancing, uh, she is also giving the impression that um, she's engaging in a decadent rebellion uh, that was initiated by Wang Shuo and Wang Xiaobo, both of whom were actually her idols. Meanwhile, uh, her poetry and fiction also underscore the vulgarization and commercialization of decadence and rebellion. That is, uh, it loses its originality and rebellious edge when decadent heroes repeat themselves or are imitated by other ordinary people. So uh, I, would, I would add that uh, for Wang Shuo and Wang Xiaobo, their decadent heroes uh, stopped their rebellion when they realized that they were starting to repeat themselves, that they were no longer able to project new ideas, exciting ideas or images of themselves because their um, perverse rebellion is reaching a dead end. So they stopped uh, when they realized um, they, they were becoming, they, they themselves were becoming a stereotype. Uh, in, in Li Chuan's writing, uh, she touched on that as well, but she also uh, spends quite a lot of uh, space to describe uh, the, the dead end presented to decadent heroes by the general public, that when their rebellion become more palatable, uh, more accessible, more imitable uh, by the public, uh, they themselves uh, loses their unique uh, identity. Uh, their, uh, they can no longer pr- proclaim that they were superior to the ordinary people, which defeats the whole purpose of decadent rebellion. So uh, Yin Li Chuan is interesting in comparison with Wang Shu and Wang Xiaobo because um, her writing, uh, much of her writing focuses on her reflection on this uh, kind of decadent style rebellion, that she is rebelling at the same time she is um, criticizing her own rebellion. So that's why I call her a reflexive rebel. I actually don't know if she would agree with my assessment, but that's my uh, reading of her work. Uh, I I feel she uh, sheds special light on how mass reproduction kills decadence and gives rise to a cultural industry that's built built on its remains. Um, Yin Li Chuan is similar to the earlier decadent writers um, that after... uh, going through uh, this reflection about um, the paradoxes of decadent rebellion, she eventually accepted the death of decadence uh, peacefully. Uh, she, she didn't have any pain when she decided that uh, this rebellion is not going to um, further its advance. So in a film uh, she made in, I don't remember which, maybe 2009, it's called... Um, um, actually, I don't remember the title, but anyway, uh, in that movie, she returns to the norms she believes in. Uh, there are several key uh, scenes in that movie that recalls her earlier poetry where she was uh, lovingly describes the um, uh, daily life objects and activities and desires. So uh, I just feel overall, in Li Chuan, despite her young age, 
She's very seasoned and sophisticated. She's able to see through um, the whole um, project of Degden Rebellion. Uh, she participated in it, and she also acknowledged that uh, it's not going to win at the end of the day. And then the cultural elite who felt um, their status was de declining eventually just had to accept that fact that um, there's not much to do. So I think um, this is why I find Indie Trans writing fascinating. And I also recommend her poetry and fiction to everyone who is interested. I agree. Yeah, I second that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, the question now that I had and, you know, your, your conclusion actually put it put it on paper perfectly, decadence or not, right? The, the rise and fall of, of China's modern cultural elite is the subtitle of the conclusion and um, very astutely poses the, the, the question, um, you know, so what, what can we what can we say, right, after considering uh, all of these writers and also the cultural and uh, literary conditions so far? And, um, you know, I was thinking that the elites were parts, a part and parcel of decadence and how did they expand its purviews and cultural tenets, whether they did or not? Um, so, you know, I was just looking for a few, uh, you know, concluding, right, remarks. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was actually uh, very surprised that I wrote the conclusion. Uh, in my dissertation, I only thought about uh, why um, decadent literature arose in the late 80s and 90s. And my conclusion in my dissertation was quite simple. It's that, oh, these um, cultural elites, these intellectuals, they were unhappy because um, the society is getting so materialistic, uh, marketized that uh, they were uh, very, they became very cynical and, and they, they hate that they, they're no longer the heroes. So end of the story, they decided to um, rebel in a decadent way. However, as I thought a little bit further, I uh, realized that it's more complicated than that. Because if you think about it, um, the the writers in the 1920s and 30s in China, they were actually living in a similar social environment. Uh, they also had to deal with the um, um, commercialism that was very uh, lively in China in the early 20th century. Uh, we tend to forget that uh, in the early 20th century, China was already pretty, in a sense, modernized and commercialized. Uh, when we were reading the canonized Chinese literature, we tend to focus on um, the writers who are more concerned with China's uh, national fate and um, enlightenment issues. But then we, we also tend to forget that uh, all those May Force writers were competing with uh, Mandarin, Duck, and Butterfly writers at the same time. Uh, so in a sense, um, the writers in the 80s and 90s uh, should feel similar to uh, the writers in the 20s and 30s because they were both experiencing um, competition, fierce competition with the commercial market. But since my book shows that writers in the 20s and 30s did not experience the sudden decline in their status, they did not feel the need to resort to decadent rebellion. So I had to ask myself why I had to explain this to myself. And then I... Um, also compare these two groups of writers with um, uh, 19th century European decadent writers. And then uh, similarly, 
those writers were also um, experiencing the challenge from the rising middle class, the bourgeois economy and uh, ideology. So again, why in China it didn't the decadent rebellion didn't appear earlier uh, than the late 1980s and 80s. And I realized that um, the reason Mayfield's writers uh, did not feel the sting of that decline is because uh, that their their social and cultural condition is has more dimensions than the solely economic aspect. So um, they they were in a time that not only China was going through commercialization, but also a huge uh, national crisis. They had to experience um, the the foreign invasions. Uh, they had to experience the civil war. Uh, so the country itself uh, was in such a dire situation that uh, people were looking up to the intellectuals, to the writers, to offer them some solution, a way out. So uh, in a sense, the May 4th writers, they were um, fortunate uh, to live in such a chaotic era because uh, they were needed um, to offer their guidance. So they were needed to enlighten the masses because of this uh, huge need the May 4th writers, despite their initial marginalization in the market, they enjoy a high uh, status and high self-esteem that they uh, didn't need to resort <clears throat> to decadence to claim their spiritual superiority. Their superiority was a given. And similarly, uh, in the immediate post-Mao era, uh, writers like Su Tong and Yu Hua um, on the one hand, they didn't have to experience um, the the commercialization of Chinese society yet. And at the same time, the country was at a similar stage um, to the 20s and 30s. Right after the Cultural Revolution, uh, ordinary people also were eager to know um, an explanation of what happened to this country, what happened to this whole body of people. And then how can we avoid future disasters that um, got everyone so miserable? So um, this, this generation of writers um, emerged, emerging after the Cultural Revolution were extremely lucky that they, they were needed by the ordinary people to offer their enlightened explanation or solution. At the same time, the socialist system uh, was providing them they didn't have to compete in the market. So even though many of the uh, stories written by the avant-garde writers uh, were very esoteric, that would never become popular in today's society, they were um, taken as gold at the time. Uh, people um, were willing to endure uh, the painful reading of their works uh, because um, this unique uh, combination of time and um, circumstances but then this golden era for Chinese writers uh, did not last very long, as I said uh, or just now, that since the mid-1980s, uh, with the reform and opening up, um, the cultural market became increasingly commercialized. And then when Wang Xiaobo, who uh, came back to China from America in uh, the late 1980s, he realized that um, his former... A dream of becoming a cultural hero is no longer possible. So this this is the main reason. Um, this this 
uh, writers um, coming in the late 80s and early 90s decided to rebel to reclaim their spiritual uh, superiority. And then if we compare the Yuhua Sutong and um, the other three, uh, I think the main difference is that Yuhua and Sutong, they benefited from the, the socialist system. Uh, by the time the market became commercialized, their status was established. They didn't have to compete. They actually was able to capitalize on their previous popularity. And then for uh, the Wang Shu and Wang Xiaobo, they were actually betrayed by the socialist system. Um, Wang Shu was made by the system to believe that he would be a revolutionary hero. Wang Shu was made to believe by the socialist system that he would be a cultural hero. But neither heroic dream was going to pan out as the country continued to reform and as the system started to um, withdraw its support, both uh, ideologically and economically. So the the decline or the sense of decline of status for these um, younger um, or later uh, writers uh, were extremely real. That um, it's if they were not made to believe that they would become heroes, they may not feel the same sting that they felt eventually. So in a sense, we can blame the socialist system for creating this decline by raising them very high in the first place and then uh, suddenly take away the support under their knees and then make them fall harshly to the ground, which <laughs> triggers their uh, decadent rebellion. So uh, I think after thinking through um, these different pieces and put them together, I realized that it's the socialist system that was playing the crucial role to, uh, the, to spur the emergence of debt and rebellion. And I find that very interesting to myself. And I was happy to write it in my conclusion. I found it fascinating as well. And so you know, so intricately uh, interesting, uh, for, for lack of a better word, um, that, you know, just looking at this over over the span of, of uh, decades, right, and how we can characterize the system, but we can also characterize, uh, you know, cultural connections and, you know, development of, of works and development of writers' careers, um, and, of course, the development of cultural elites, right, through, through this perspective. So, yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I have a ton of other questions, but, you know, I wanted to uh, not take, you know, your whole afternoon and lunchtime. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about your, your current projects, what you're working on right now. Sure, I'd be happy to. So my journey through decadence uh, in 20th century Chinese literature and culture made me realize that my true passion is actually uh, the ever-changing dynamics among the state the cultural elite, and the populace uh, in modern China. Uh, I ventured a little bit into the elitist avant-garde theater uh, in the past few years. And right now, my research focuses on the popular satiric skits, or called Xiaopin, in the National Spring Festival Gala on China Central Television, or CCTV. Uh, the CCTV gala skits are the most popular performance in the most watched show on the most censored channel in mainland China. 
uh, I believe they provide a unique window to examine the political discourse in contemporary China, especially how the state and the populace contest and engage with each other through laughter. I'm working on uh, expanding this project into my second monograph, tentatively titled uh, The Laughter of the Others, satiric skits on the CCTV Spring Festival Gala and China's post-socialist condition. I want to shed light on China's post-socialist condition through the comic portrayal of various types of others, be it occupational, sexual, age, moral, regional, ethnic, or racial. Uh, I'm looking forward to working on this project because I, I want to have some good laugh. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's amazing. I mean, now that you mention it, it just... it opened up a whole new window in my head, you know, of, of, of all these um, right, events that happen every year. And then you have these kids and they they totally reflect um, right on, on the, the engagement between the political system and the cultural industry, if we may say so. No. And of course, mm-hmm. much more. But um, that's amazing. And I really I really want to interview you on the next book. So I'll keep an eye out. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, in the meantime, I hope uh, to 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 read more as it's, it's getting published. And, you know, before that, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to, to, to more amazing work. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a great pleasure being here. And I also look forward to hearing your uh, research as well. Maybe <laughs> I can interview you sometime. Well. Oh, that would be lovely. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>